The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 11th Doctor story, The Crimson Horror. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going, Dom? Farewell, thanks. Folks, be sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's StarQuest, one word. To 66866. And I want to tell you about another show on the network that I'm sure you'll enjoy called American Catholic History. In about 20 minutes every week, Tom and Noel will tell you something very interesting about the Catholic, the history of Catholics in America, uh, in perhaps something you've never heard of before. In fact, usually something you were unaware of before. Uh, some really great topics. Definitely check it out at sqpn.com slash history or wherever fine podcasts are found. So today we're talking about Crimson Horror, and uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? It's 1893, and the Paternoster gang goes to Yorkshire to rescue the doctor who's become embroiled in a mystery there. The mystery centers on Mrs. Gillyflower, a mysterious social reformer who is taking only physically and mentally perfect young men and women into her Sweetville facility from which no one ever returns alive. Although some people do return dead with their skin turned bright red, which people have taken to calling the Crimson Horror. So we have a title. It turns out that the Crimson Horror is caused by the venom of a red leech left over from Silurian times. Mrs. Gilliflower has been dipping her perfect human specimens in diluted leech venom to preserve them through a coming apocalypse. She knows all about the coming apocalypse because she's going to cause it. She's got a rocket, and she's going to use it to kill all humans with full-strength venom from the leech, which is symbiotically attached to her and who she refers to as Mr. Sweet. After everyone is dead, her perfect human specimens will emerge from their state of preservation and become the Adams and Eves of a new paradisical world. That's her idea of how to do social reform. So she's not just a mysterious social reformer, but a mysterious, insane social reformer. And she won't be taking her daughter into the new paradise because she experimented on her daughter, so the daughter is now disfigured and no longer physically perfect. The Paternoster gang and the doctors stop her from poisoning the world, and Mrs. Gillyflower falls to her death, so the leech, Mr. Sweet, abandons her. Gillyflower's daughter, who has been totally betrayed by her mother, then violently squishes Mr. Sweet to death. And after the doctor gets Clara back to her own time, Clara is confronted by the two kids she takes care of. They've deduced that Clara's boyfriend is a time traveler, and they demand to be taken on an adventure through time. The end. <laughs> that is uh, <laughs> comprehensive. So a uh, couple of things I just want to start off with. I, I, I think I only ever watched this one once. The first time, yep. th first time I watched it, uh, the I've mentioned before this part of this season of Doctor Who uh, yep. is very is very. Uh, uh, I don't remember very well, and 
so I it's, kind of approach it's, this. It's not a, it's not a great season. It's got mm-hmm. the yeah. end of Amy and Rory, which is mostly downs with a few ups in terms yeah. of episode quality. Then it picks up for a bit with um with the introduction of Clara, and then it drops off a bit before we get to the end and we run yeah. into the anniversary specials. Right. And yeah, and it's, so it's not these aren't very memorable episodes. I mean, this one had some had its moments. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I'm always interested in seeing the Paternoster gang again. They're kind of an interesting group of characters, and uh, they've, they're fairly well defined by this point. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 uh, the characters themselves. You know, Strax is always good for an amusing. He always too. gets the best lines. Oh, yes, yeah. he does. Um, uh, and I have to say that I mean, a stellar guest star. Uh, you know, Diana Rigg. I always always enjoy seeing Diana Rigg and whatever she's doing. I did not recognize her at first, and because I'm familiar with her from, from her Early. standout role, which yeah. is Emma Peel on the yep. Avengers, and um, and she so so Jonathan Steed and Emma Peel were the two characters in the British TV spy series known as '60s spy series known as the Avengers, and she was not Steed's first companion but she was his most famous companion mm-hmm. and she was picked for she wasn't the last either but she she was picked because at diana rigg at that age had man appeal or m appeal that's <laughs> yes. where her name comes from they ah. wanted someone with m appeal and they yeah. got it, and she yeah. is she is awesome in her black tight cat's leather cat suit thing in the <laughs> yes. Avengers. Wow, she is fun to watch. Um, yep. But she here she is a really old lady. Yeah, and I totally did not recognize. I, I I was seeing in the credits that's Diana Rigg. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, I had that I had that moment watching Game of Thrones where she was in that, and she was fantastic in that. She was outstanding. And so it goes to show she wasn't just a pretty face. I mean, she was she was a good actor, and uh, and well, and this she she really chews up some scenery in this one. And I, I wonder if Action Jenny in this episode I, is a callback to Emma Peel. Yes, I have it in yeah. my notes because they at one point get Jenny into a leather cat suit to fight, and it's like okay, this is an homage to Emma Peel. Yeah, yep. yeah, that must have been fun on set because you know Jenny getting to be the homage, the actress getting to to do that for for uh, Dana Rigg. So uh, the the other thing I wanted to say, starting out, is this is a both a Doctor Light and Companion Light episode. So you know, for a, a substantial portion of this half, there is no uh, Doctor uh, in this. It was about twelve it was minutes. It was about twelve minutes yeah. before the Doctor was finally shown. Oh, okay. It felt like longer in his but, zombie yeah. form. Yeah, but it was about twelve because I, I was looking as I kind of wrote down ten minutes, no Doctor, and it was it yeah. was about. 12 minutes when they finally when you finally got on the scene then clara was just a few minutes later yeah but yeah. that's still a third of the episode yep right exactly right. also i was going to mention so this is written by mark gatiss and it's another yep. one of mark gatiss's victorian era nostalgia episodes he has mm. apparently some kind of nostalgia for this period that manifests on doctor who in episodes like this and the empress of mars mm-hmm. yep and also in Sherlock, which is, with one exception, all well, the original source material is all 19th century. Right. And right. he clearly has some nostalgia for this period. Right. Right. And actually, that kind of comes into the comment I was going to make, which is this, there's this character, Mr. Thursday, who uh, says his, was his brother or brother-in-law 
is the is a character who dies of the Crimson Horror right at, right at the front, and he goes to the uh, not it's not an autopsy, it's to the Undertaker apparently, mm-hmm. uh, who's Mortician. been fishing, Mortician, right? To, who's been fishing people out of the out of the river with this Crimson Horror, and he brings up this f- first. He, well, one of the first things he says that's very nineteenth century is, uh, "I have no interest in the deplorable excesses of the penny dreadfuls." Uh, when he yeah. when he in reference to the mortician's tales of what you know what he thinks is going on, and Pe- penny, penny dreadfuls were not. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say penny. The, like, you, like you were going to say, penny dreadfuls were a type of Victorian pulp fiction. Actually, they have their origins earlier, but they were really, really popular at this period of time. Um, they would sell millions of the copies of these lurid stories, and you know, just <laughs> just kind of the uh, the most the craziest uh, tales of. Uh, uh, whether it's monsters or gothic horror or whatever that sort of thing uh, got, or your just, ins- got your insane pyromaniac wife in the attic and the new governess yeah. comes in yeah. yeah right that sort of stuff and uh so it's a <laughs> lot it, so uh so that, that's if you ever hear the term penny dreadfuls that's what it is and then he references this this technique he's going to perform called an optogram which yeah. he says is a superstitious uh thing of Photograph of the last thing an eye sees, uh, where you know, it, and well, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, this is also feels very Victorian. This idea of these uh, mm-hmm. s- this pseudo scientific idea that that they and it, it's not complete. It's not how the eye works, but it's not completely unreasonable. I mean, once mm-hmm. you've so historically, the, a lot of people don't realize this, but our understanding of vision is a version of how vision works known as intromissive vision and the and we're aware and science has confirmed that we have rays of light that um, come into our eyes and are then then strike the retina at the back of the eye which is a transducer that turns them into electrical impulses chemical electrical impulses that can go to the brain and the brain then processes them but this is uh, even the intromissive theory of vision. I mean, if forget optic nerves and electrical impulses and stuff. Even the intromissive theory of vision is a fairly recent development in terms of its acceptance. Historically, uh, the rival theory, the extromissive theory of vision, was very popular in many cultures. And the idea there was the light emits a kind of ray that allows us to feel things in the world and gather information about them. Hmm. And while the intromissive theory turns out to be true, it was not obvious to everybody in history. But once you get to the idea, okay, we've got light rays that are coming into our eyes and striking our retina, it wouldn't be, obviously it changes over time what we're seeing, what our retina is recording, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to say, well, I wonder what happens at the moment life stops, because all our bodily right. processes stop at that moment. Maybe it, maybe the retina stops processing stuff in such a way that the last thing you saw is recorded on your retina. Mm-hmm. And while an octogram apparently is not a real thing, this, this was an idea that people had, and they've even mentioned it in Doctor Who before. It was in uh, the Ark in Space. Where you back in Tom Baker's like second adventure, where you have the Weirin on the space station on Nerva Station, the wasp like aliens, mm-hmm. and they they look at somebody's retina in that. Mm. Mm. Yes, yes, and yeah, that's true. I, I remember that now. Um, so 
it, it just before that happens, by the way, the the this Mr. Thursday has gone to the Paternoster gang in London uh, to get their help because uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, Lady Vastra is the Sherlock of her time. Basically, that's people go to her yeah. for uh, you know weird, strange mysteries and cases to be solved. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they even say that Conan Doyle is basing Sherlock Holmes off her. Right, right. Right. The, and there's this ongoing joke throughout the episode where this Mr. Thursday keeps seeing, first he sees Lady Vastra without her veil and faints, and then he sees Strax and faints, and then eventually when he sees the TARDIS uh, dematerialize, he faints. So there's an ongoing joke about that one. Um, it, I wondered if Mr. Thursday was also an illusion. Uh, because or an homage, because G.K. Chesterton yeah. mm-hmm. um, has a novel called "The Man Who Was Thursday," and um, about a guy who is known as Thursday. And I wondered if this was an homage to that. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, possibly because that's uh, not contemporary to this, but a little after. Not quite. Yeah, interesting. It has that that same feel, though, mm-hmm. in a way. Right. So they they do keep making jokes. Uh, through throughout this about them having to go to the north to the north of the country uh so mm-hmm. apparently the there's a there's a sort of uh north south rivalry within england uh, and uh we've seen that before in in doctor who I mean, actually the oh, most yeah. recent series seasons but there's a whole po- uh, thing where strax makes a comment about you know getting gathering all his weapons and she's like strax we're not gonna need all that well we are going to the north and so you know there's obviously yeah. some sort of inside joke on that this- here there be dragons, or this is the Wild West, or however you want to put it. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, another great Strax line is when uh, Vastra says, according to my research, uh, Mrs. Gillyflower holds recruitment drives and is only interested in the fittest and most beautiful. And Strax says, you may rely on me, ma'am. <laughs> and I was, in fact, speaking to Jenny. <laughs> so that was, yeah. a, that was a nice, funny moment there. Like you said, Strax gets the great lines. I liked uh there was a uh, there was a couple of nice allusions to Peter Davison's fifth doctor mm-hmm. in this where um the doctor and Clara the doctor has promised to take Clara to Victorian London but they materialize in Victorian Yorkshire mm-hmm. and he sa- and he ju- kind of justifies that by saying well it's be- it's a lot better than it used to be I took years trying to get a a, a gobby Australian back to Heathrow airport <laughs> yes. right? and yep. referencing Tegan <laughs> right and uh, and then when they encounter danger, the doctor says, "Braveheart, Clara." <laughs> that was awesome. Which yeah. is instead of Braveheart, Tegan. That well, I, I get a kick too out of Clara's response when he he said that about the, the going to Heathrow. She goes, "Why would you want to do that?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that was a, that was a nice moment. I, I, this time around, I recognized it, so that was a lot of fun. Um, so the uh, Mrs. Gillyflower is like you mentioned is a kind of morality campaigner. Not specifically religious, you know, that she she doesn't come up as, you know, uh, preaching specific religious doctrine, but it, it echoes it, you know, that sort of we live in times of immorality and great uh, uh, depravity and that sort of thing. And it, there's an assumed Christian subtext to all this, mm-hmm. which is which was true of social reformers in, in Victorian England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so they have this sort of... Um, prayer rally not prayer rally but sort of a a, a rally where she's sort of a like a revival service that's what i'm yep. thinking of yeah um and uh and so jenny is agrees to join and shows up at sweetville which is the this 
basically it's a, sort of a company town. So there's a factory with living quarters attached that the, they live at. Yeah, and it we're we're told it's a match factory, so they make lucifers there. Although they don't use the word lucifers, but that was mm-hmm. a common term for matches at the time. Oh, funny, yeah, right. that makes sense. Um, and uh, Jenny, well, because they bring they bring light. You strike a match, yeah. you got a little light. That's right. So it's a light bringer. That's right. Um, Je- Jenny quickly discovers that the whole factory is a faked front. That all of the factory noises are being g- generated by uh, turntables. And Clara notices that the uh, t- the tower of the factory does not belch smoke. Right. And it turns out it's it's just a silo for housing the rocket they're building. Right. The rocket they're going to launch, um, which will not possibly infect all of earth with leech venom. right one rocket going up over yorkshire is gonna you may kill a lot of yorkshireans mm-hmm. but yeah you're not gonna doom the human race that way right um meanwhile the, so the doc so so the doctor has been doc, the doctor and clara were investigating sweetville and what the, as you mentioned they dip the the new members in this venom and those who survived diluted. yeah diluted venom those who survive are preserved mm-hmm. in bell jars, and those who do not survive uh, end up with this red skin, um, almost like leathery uh, skin, like mm-hmm. uh, and um, and uh, it, you know a horror, rictus of horror in their face, and they're they're tossed out, they're dead. Uh, except the doctor survives because he's not human, but is not, but he's still got the uh, the crimson horror bit to him. And so Ada, who is Mrs. Gillyflower's daughter kind of takes him on her own initiative and locks him up in this chamber and takes care of him. He can't speak because he's got this this uh, rigor, you know, g- going uh, and uh, can only grunt and moan and she's feeding him. And so we see her feeding him through this door. We don't know that it's the doctor yet. We kind of assume he is. It is. Uh, and she calls him my monster. So she keeps referring to him as my yeah. monster. Uh, which is interesting. And she is an emotionally fragile individual who cannot see the doctor because her mother has blinded her. We later we later learn that the experiments uh, her mother performed on her, Tech like yeah. were to test out the leech venom and find out what the limits were and how it could be used and stuff like that. But as a result, she is blind. She does not have pupils or like They're, fully functional pupils in her eyes and she's got facial scarring and stuff like that and so she's lonely and and disfigured and blind and is is treating the doctor as kind of a pet for companionship you know, mm-hmm. mrs gillyflower you know claims in her revival meeting that oh. she was beaten by the husband but i'm like why wouldn't ada know that this is all false like wouldn't she remember unless some memory they've done some memory thing to her I don't know. I don't recall that. I I don't recall. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Incidentally, the actress who plays Ada is Diana Riggs' real life daughter. So you have a you oh. have mo- mother daughter acting going on here, nice. which That's I, cool. I I wonder about the emotional dynamic <laughs> on the part of the two actors, given what yeah. happens with these characters. No <laughs> That's funny. Maybe she's got some grudge against her mom, <laughs> but. Uh, but but yeah. yeah yeah Dom you're you're right though that she uh, she does say during the revival that her daughter was was blinded by her husband in a, you know drunken rage and that's why she's against alcohol you know, and, you know he told her and all that um and you you wonder if, of course there's you could put all kinds of backstories behind this but you wonder if basically the mother brainwashed the daughter into believing that it was the father that did it in the first place right right 
or if the daughter's just going along with it for the sake of the greater social reform cause. That's true, too. Yeah, although she seems surprised when told that her mother experimented her, and that's why she's blind. But, mm, yeah. 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 In any case, I mean, it's a, it's a little plot hole that they just kind of go over. So um, I, I did like that when we we finally jenny finds a doctor and it gets him revived by putting him in the magic closet <laughs> some sort of booth that revives him uh perfectly and he tells her in montage style what happens but it's old moving picture montage style i don't know if you noticed like they use like the old yes. sepia colored like film sort of thing so that was a, as they say the false color yeah tape uh, there's a and diff- different different lighting and frame rates to make it simulate old fashioned film. Right, right. There's a moment where uh, he and Clara are impersonating locals in order to get into the factory, and he puts on this Yorkshire accent, which is really quite quite interesting. Uh, Yorkshire accent. I'm, I'm sure even locals uh, found it even more amusing than I did. That uh, crimson horror is a organic poison. He calls it that. Mister Sweet is the brains of the operation, but a silent partner. <laughs> very silent and uh mm. yeah and so so the, anyway so there's you, that use your words yeah <laughs> I was trying to trans <laughs> i was looking for a good transition because there's another strax moment that i wanted to mention that i have in my notes which is mm-hmm. he's lost looking for sweetville he's got a horse and carriage that he's driving and he runs mm-hmm. into a, a, a boy named thomas who gives him uh thomas thomas who gives him very gps like directions yes go down to the end of the street turn around and go back and take your first left and it's a joke on the TomTom GPS yeah. system. Uh, well, you, you notice, too, when they're standing next to each other, they're the same height. <laughs> right, they are. Yeah. That's either a really tall boy or very short straps. Yeah. If I remember the line right, he also says, I, I, I believe you will go far, Thomas Thomas. <laughs> yes. 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 And apparently he does, uh, 100 years later. Yeah. One thing that I liked in this was the, um, the way they handle Clara, because... As far as the Paternoster gang knows, Clara died Yes, in the Snowman special. And so this is the first time they've seen Clara since then. And the doctor himself does not understand what's going on with Clara. He won't know that for several episodes yet. He knows Clara is not a threat, which is why he's much friendlier, friendlier to her mm-hmm. in this episode than he has been, because that was established last time. But he doesn't know why he keeps meeting Clara in different periods of history. So he keeps dodging the Paternoster gang's questions about how is this dead woman alive? Um, however, I don't know why he needs to dodge them so much. All he has to say is time machine. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> leave it at that. Although, yeah, it would be very weird for him to have gone back in time and got her before she died in his. They don't know yeah. any. I mean, just time machine. That, that'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. even if you don't know, I mean, it's like okay, he's got a time machine. Somehow that's involved, or even just they're related somehow. Yeah. Also, um, something that occurred to me in watching this, especially in the scene where um, Ada is feeding the doctor in this kind of it's it's I get it's like an attic, I guess in the mm-hmm. in the uh, in the factory. But it's like got a straw floor and it's got iron manacles and it, it's kind of like what you would see in a barn or something in a hammer horror film. Mm-hmm. And and it it struck me that a lot of the aesthetic, especially early early in this episode, is a lot like hammer horror. 
Mm. people who may not be familiar with that, uh, Hammer was a British film company that became famous in the 1960s and 70s for its line of horror films. They did versions of Dracula and The Mummy and Frankenstein with actors like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And um, it they had this very stylish European color take that was different on these characters than the black and white 1930s universal horror films mm. that had been made in America. And it, some of that sensibility, it seemed to me like they were emulating some of that sensibility, especially early in this. Right, right. I, I, I kind of joke that a doctor had got to put on his best uh, Frankenstein's monster slash zombie impersonation <laughs> yeah. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was very, yeah, very much like that. Uh, so the, you met, we mentioned before Jenny going all uh, Emma Peel uh, ninja style on him. Uh, there was a funny line from the doctor where they they show up after he gets out of his you know revival cabinet and they uh, he says oh great attack by supermodels <laughs> which I think is funny because <laughs> talking about how Mrs. Gilly looking for the the best and the brightest and the fittest and the healthiest and all that sort of thing. Um, so. Speaking they, of Mrs. Gillyflower, she you yeah. were talking about fun fun lines in this and. There's a great bit where uh, the doctor is confronting her. This is towards the end, but he's confronting her, and he's warning her that he doesn't realize yet just how evil she is. And he's warning her that, you know, in the wrong hands, all this leech venom could, like, kill everyone in the world. And and she kind of gives this exasperated expression where she holds up her hands, and she says, you know what these are? The wrong hands. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, there's a confrontation in the drawing room. We heard the, apparently the control panel for the uh, the missile is the uh, organ panel that she switches over. The, it's it's the reverse side of an organ. So you play the organ the right way, it spins around, and you get your rocket control panel, which is also very steampunk, and yes. and the reversible organ panel that's more hammer horror stuff. Yep. Uh, pulling out all the stops, uh, literally to, to get it to go. Uh, the doctor is like trying to figure out oh, how do I put how how do I uh, dismantle or stop this rocket from launching? And Clara comes up with you know, throw a chair into the works, uh, which apparently is effective. Yeah, and he's like, I've got a screwdriver, and he holds up the Sonic, and she just throws, and I've got a chair, and she just throws yeah. it in. It's like chairs work too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, then there's the whole confrontation, of course, very again, very uh, Victorian Gothic uh, horror thing, where there's the confrontation in the tower uh, as mm -hmm. uh, as Mrs. Gillyflower is going for the secondary launch control. She manages to launch the missile, which doesn't incinerate them while standing yeah. below the rocket blast. <laughs> yeah, as the rocket's going up this this tower, it's not like immediately filling it with smoke and. And fire, and fire and killing them all, you know. <laughs> it's also so, a very you know, steam steampunk looking rocket. Oh yeah. It is very, yeah. Um you but, know, it, it it struck yeah. me, particularly in this part of the episode, that this is sort of the second time we've seen this insane villainous female Victorian social reformer trope mm -hmm. on Doctor Who. Because yep. in the David Tennant special, the la the next doctor, mm. there's right. I forget her name. It's mercy or something like that right but uh, the villain in that the prime villain is a is another insane 19th century female social reformer who wants to bring in a brave new world 
with the Cyberman, and right. she ends up becoming the Cyber King. And so it was interesting to see, okay, we've got essentially the same kind of thing going on. And in that one, she ended up becoming part of a big, once she was cyberized, she mm-hmm. ended up becoming part of the head of a big uh, mecha, yep. of a steampunk mecha, a giant robot right. um, with her in it. And here we've got a giant rocket, that, but the same kind of, uh, you know, it's it's clearly made out of metal, but it's like partially rusted and things like that. It's not gleaming. It right. has that older vibe. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, Mrs. Gilliflower, like you mentioned, falls to her death, and uh, the leech abandons her as, as she's dying. And, and that's, Ada, a good, that's a good point yeah. to talk about. Just how yeah. one of the one of the worst things about this episode. Yep. When you finally see the monster, it is a big letdown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is because the it it it's it's a little it's it's sort of humanoid. I mean, it's got a head that looks a little bit like a gray alien head. Yeah. And it's got arms, and it's got a kind of toothy sucker mouth, and it's red, and it's very tiny, and looks a little bit like an evil baby. Mm-hmm. And it is utterly underwhelming. Yeah. And that's one of the th- reasons I think this is, this is not, and it like suckles at her, at her throat under her clothes. Mm-hmm. And how this tiny thing would make the vast amount of venom needed to preserve her specimens much less kill all humans yeah is left completely unexplained yeah but it's it's this pitiful tiny easily squishable big bad yep and it's it fails to work to from my perspective as a big bad it's just this pitiful little thing that eventually ada steps on viciously Mm -hmm. and squishes right yeah i mean when it when it detaches from uh miss miss gillyflower it's crawling across the floor it's not like one of these you know where you usually see where it's you know jumps in at someone or something like that no it's yeah. it's barely crawling across the floor it could barely move on its own it has no lines we never right. it not even telepathically do we ever hear the thing no. communicate it's it's very underwhelming it's not at all threatening i mean there's no threat to it except for the venom it produces but it doesn't yep. seem to be yeah, yeah, it is. You're right. It is underwhelming. I mean, Mrs. Gillyflower is really the only villain in yeah. this. It's also uh, gross. So it's both gross yeah. and underwhelming. And I think that's one of the reasons that I, I, I haven't studied what fandom has thought about this episode because it's so forgettable. But I know it's one of the reasons I found this an unpleasant, underwhelming episode when I first yeah. watched it. I, I liked it better. I got, saw more things in it I liked on this analytical rewatch but still this is not a this is not a good villain everything about this episode that i liked was a was the stuff that didn't have really have anything to do with the main plot it was the the little flourishes here and there um, which is unfortunate um so ada eventually you know she she confronts like as her mother's dying um the mother says you know forgive me my child, forgive me. And Ada says, never. And Mrs. Gillyflower says, that's my girl. So ve- that's a very creepy moment there. Like, uh, yes, yep. d- embrace the dark side. Let the evil flow through you. Very, you know, emperor moment. Um, As you're about to die and go meet your maker, being a mm-hmm. crazy social reformer with a Christian subtext. It is particularly creepy. It's kind of like the moment in Hamlet 
where uh, Hamlet comes across his uncle and he's he's planning on killing his uncle, but then he finds his uncle alone and it's a perfect opportunity to kill him, except his uncle is praying. And mm. Hamlet is afraid that if he kills his uncle now, his uncle will go to heaven. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. So uh, the doctor at the end, after the resolution of everything, the doctor drops Clara off at home, as you mentioned, and the, the two kids that she nannies, which I've almost forgotten about from the beginning mm-hmm. of the season, um, they do confront her with this evidence of her time traveling. You know, they have these pictures that they've gotten from the internet of her in different periods, although they show her the picture of the Clara from the Christmas special, who's not really this Clara, mm-hmm. and she's confused by that one. She's like, wait, that didn't happen, which... You could, well, she again, slips up because it was it was a picture from London, and says, "Well, we didn't go to London. We went to Yorkshire." Yeah. Now, you know, yeah, given time travel, you could explain it like, again, like you said, Jimmy. You could explain it as time travel that we haven't done that one yet, but you know that that would be the, the way she could explain it to herself. Um, but they use it to blackmail Clara to take them time traveling, and which leads directly into the very next Eleventh Doctor episode, the Nightmare in Silver, which we will be getting to uh, next time. Uh, next time we talk with the Element Doctor, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, any last notes on this one, guys? No, yes, Grandma Ryan because a little early for them, but no. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's yeah. Okay, <laughs> nothing else. Jimmy, any final notes? Nope. All right, let's wrap things up then. Uh, we would like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including. Annie D, Matthew F, Stephanie D, Ann K, and Todd H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear from you. What did you think of this 11th Doctor story, The Crimson Horror? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the seventh Doctor story, Ghost Light. Until then, Ooh, Father Corey Stika. cool. <laughs> Father Corey, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Things are going to get weird. Yeah. <laughs> And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, she needs only ignore all keep-out signs, go through every locked door, and run toward any form of danger that presents itself. 